Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. This week's interview is with a founder who had an idea for his startup while he was working for someone else and realized that there was a gap in the market. He and his co-founder initially bootstrapped the business. They built and launched the product fairly quickly and started charging $5 a month. Now, some people will tell you that you can't build a sizable business charging just 5 or $10 per month. These guys didn't believe that. They went on to raise $35 million in funding, uh, currently have over 100 employees, and have an annual run rate of over $10 million. And they still only charge $15 a month for their product. There are some great lessons in this interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Today's guest is the co-founder and CEO of Yesware, a sales platform that helps salespeople connect with prospects, track engagement, and close more deals. Yesware serves more than 750,000 salespeople at companies like AdRoll, Groupon, Salesforce, Twilio, and Yelp, just to name a few. Yesware was founded in 2011 and is based in Boston, Massachusetts. To date, the company has raised over $35 million in funding. So today, I'd like to welcome Matthew Bellows. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thanks, Omar. Great to be here. Now, I always like to ask, kind of figure out what drives and motivates my guests. And we often look for uh, maybe a favorite quote that somebody has. So is there a quote that that maybe really resonates with you? Uh, The quote I was thinking about uh, sharing with you today is, chaos should be regarded as extremely good news, which is a quote from a Tibetan uh, meditation master named Trungpa Rinpoche. Okay, I, I'm not. I don't know how to spell that, but I'll I'll, I'll look. I'll, I'll look it up. <laughs> cool. And why 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 is that for you? Why do you love chaos so much? Sure. Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. It means basically, you know, that when things are unsettled, then there's a tremendous opportunity for growth, and that could be applied, you know, to uh, you know personal growth situations and also to business growth situations. If if everything was static then there'd be no opportunity for startups to grow. And a little bit of chaos is often very good for startups to grow into. Yeah, that's good attitude, good mindset. Okay, so I explained to the audience a little bit about uh, Yesware, but in, in your own words, t- tell our audience what the product actually does. Sure. Yesware integrates with, the, with your email client, uh, your Gmail or your Outlook client, your mobile phone, your calendar, your CRM system, and basically customizes it for the sales. So it makes salespeople more effective. It helps you uh, communicate better with customers and prospects. It gives you feedback about when prospects are opening your message or downloading your links or, or reading your documents or engaging with your content. Um, and then it gives you suggestions about how to do better, about how to increase your productivity and be more effective as a salesperson. Okay, so let's start from the beginning. Where did you, how did you come up with the idea for this business? Well, I've been, I've been a salesperson for most of my career. So I ended up, you know, 
carrying a carrying a bag, carrying a quota for a number of years, and then running teams. And then my last job, I was the VP of sales at a venture back startup, um, a post that I've held two or three times in my career. So um, I just kept running into these same problems again and again, and finally decided, you know, it's time to do something about it. You you you're kind of seeing this problem. What what exactly did you do when you decided I was going to, I'm going to do something about it? Well, the, 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 the actual moment I remember it distinctly was when I was getting ready for a board meeting. I was a VP of sales, a venture back startup in, in Massachusetts, and I was putting together my slide, which most founders in this call would know. It's like, it's called your pipeline slide. It's the list of deals that you think will close in the next 30 or 60 or 90 days and how much they're going to close for. And, you know, this is something that every VP of sales has to do all over the all over the world. And I'm going through the process of talking to my reps and looking at their pipeline and talking to some of the customers and sitting on phone calls. And I developed this slide and it's just I realized the night before the presentation how little data I actually had to get this number together. I, I basically was just kind of guessing and guessing about each salesperson and how much they were sandbagging or how overly optimistic they were. And then adding up all those guesses and putting on a slide that was more or less my career, you know, sort of betting my job on my ability to get this number right. And, um, it struck me as incredibly unsatisfying and not at all how it should work, you know, coming up on the 21st century. Uh, so, you know, at first I thought, Oh, well, our CRM is antiquated. We need a new CRM. Um, and then I looked at, you know, a half dozen other CRMs out there and just realized that they all are predicated on the sort of garbage in garbage out scenario. And, you know, salespeople don't like typing stuff into their CRM system and managers don't get a lot of value out of the things they read coming out the other end. So I thought there's just gotta be a better way. Uh, and that was the moment where I, I called up my friend Cashman and I said, Hey, let's, you know, software for salespeople. And he was like, yeah, I can build that. And so we started Yesware. So I, w- I want to kind of understand a little bit more about this because you, you kind of said you kind of s- saw the problem and you decided initially that, you know, you needed a CRM system and then the CRM problem, the CRM system wasn't the problem. Well, it was, it was more that it was more that the CRM, the state of the CRM industry was such that it wasn't, and no one was solving the problem. The problem is that, um, the data that a salesperson or sales manager needs to understand what's going on with her or his business is stuck in the email box and it does not get translated properly into the business, you know, database of record, which is the CRM. And, and that that's correct. And the, from the point of view that like, there's no one who should be typing tons of stuff into your CRM. It's totally ridiculous. And, Highly paid, smart, hardworking salespeople spend an hour or two a day typing information into their database. Like computers are really good at doing that. There's no reason for CRMs to exist in that way. So it wasn't, it it was basically that I I realized that the CRM industry, a, a $30 billion industry, had not come to its final state and that instead it needed some serious innovation. And the type of information that you're talking about being typed into a CRM were things like um, how many people had 
opened an email, responded to an email. Even more basic things than that. Just like, what um, did I talk to this prospect? What did they say? Did I meet with them? How did the meeting go? Um, when did I think the deal was going to close? How much did I think it was going to close for? Like the very most basic aspects of the sales process were manually entered by optimistic and sometimes confused salespeople um, into a database that had no real analytics based on the activity of the salesperson or the interest level of the prospect. And that seemed to me to be fundamentally wrong. Okay, so you've got this idea. Um, you you see a a potential opportunity, and then you said you talked to um, your co-founder Cashman. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how did you two meet? Uh, we met actually at his first job out of college, and my first job, um, move, live, you know, moving back to Boston. Where, where did you guys go with this idea? Did you start to say, okay, well, let's go out and validate it. Let's just start building something. What were the next steps you took? Well, he and I had started a, a company before and we had built it up and, and sold it successfully. So we kind of been through the startup thing together. We knew a lot about each other and, and kind of knew how we responded to each other and worked well together. So um, we had a, a couple legs up from that point of view. Um, I guess where we started was sort of sketching out different things on various notepads and napkins and whiteboards. Uh, he was living in Brazil at the time and I was living in Boston. So there was some amount of sort of transcontinental flying and Skyping. And um, I remember we met in late 2010 in uh, his parents' home in Louisiana and sort of had a final dinner table conversation, like, are we really going to do this? And both decided to do it. And then at that point, we sort of moved into the prototyping phase. So the the company that you guys had founded before, was that um, WGR Media? Yes, exactly. So you guys launched this uh, mobile-focused media company, uh, ran that for a few years, and then sold it to CNET. Yep, that's right. So for your boot, for your for your listeners, you know, in terms of financing strategies, that was a bootstrapped company um, where we just, you know, grew it based on collecting from our customers. Uh, yes, whereas a VC backed company uh, so we can grow, you know, employee headcount ahead of revenue. So I've had experience now with both kind of major models for financing. Okay, so you you guys have decided that you're gonna kind of pull the trigger on this. Did you do any kind of validation? Did you did you kind of go out and start doing kind of you know customer development interviews or things like that, or or were you really were you the customer? Yeah, I did. I did customer interviews, and and uh, I met with a bunch of salespeople that I knew and sales managers that I knew, and I met with some investors actually early on just to sort of sanity check the idea. Um, so there was a lot while Cashman was sort of thinking about the technical side of the prototype he wanted to build. I was sort of thinking about the basic problems that we were solving and, the general approach to the application we wanted to build. Um, but honestly, when I think back on it, I, I, I mean, (laughs) I was, I had pretty much already sold myself on this being the biggest opportunity I've ever seen in my lifetime. So. I probably wasn't. I was putting my thumb on the scale to be sure. 
Now, I, I don't know what the state of the market was around that time, 2010, 2011, but I'm guessing Yesware wasn't the only product or you know, up, uh, product about to launch sort of solving this type of problem. So it pretty much was actually. Really, there were were very few companies focused on salespeople back then. Uh, There, there had been, there had been in the the past. There were companies like Act and Goldmine, and um, even BlackBerry was really started as a sales-focused company. But um, all of them either, you know, morphed into CRMs, which are much more management-focused or became the marketing automation companies um, that we know now. Um, so, so in 2010, 2011, there were very few companies that were serving salespeople. And, um, and I remember in our first you know, uh, interviews with investors, a lot of them were sort of saying, like, that's not a category. There is no software for salespeople out there. <laughs> and you know, my, my point was sort of like, I know, exactly. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Like, there's got to be. We should make it. How did you figure out where you were going to focus your efforts? I mean, trying to build a tool for salespeople seems like a really broad space, an incredibly huge market. So did you guys kind of have any kind of conversation about, okay, here's how we're going to niche down. Here's how we're going to kind of be a little bit more focused when we go to launch or, or do you didn't think about that? We did. We did. And it was some of the most important decisions that we made earlier on um, were to be more and more focused. And frankly, I think we could have been even more focused thinking back on it. But but um, one of our early customers and advisors, a guy named Jeremy Allaire, who started Allaire Corp and then, you know, sold to Macromedia and then started a company called Break Cove here in Boston, um, was the one who really recommended that we start with the Google apps ecosystem. So as your listeners probably know, you know, there's two major email platforms out there. Now there's outlook, which is probably 90% of the market. And then there's Google apps and Gmail, which is probably five or 6% of the market. Um, And Jeremy's, you know, you know, advice to us was to start with Google apps, which is obviously much smaller as a market but full of early adopters with a much better development platform and a much easier distribution platform uh, channel. And so we, after some consideration, decided to go with that approach. And that was a really helpful focusing function to really get us just on one platform and an easier one at that. So I'm curious, how would you have, I mean, as you said, sort of you, 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 ideally you would have niched down even more. How, how would you have done that differently? How would you have been even more focused? Well, I think in addition to being focused on a technology platform, which really did help us, um, we could have been more focused on the segment of the, of the sales world that we were selling to. Um, we started with a freemium business model and we started sort of, Anybody who wanted to download Yesware could, and uh, and anyone could buy it for not much money. We started with five bucks a month as the price tag, and I kind of wish we had used price discrimination um, and um, and maybe like pricing model more aggressively to 
get fewer people to buy the product in a sense, and only the ones that were really the right kind of salespeople that we that we wanted to build the product around. We ended up getting in the early days a lot of consumers and a lot of people just kicking the tire, you know. And I, if we had charged more and maybe charged annual only, we might have gotten few of those people and therefore been able to be more focused on building just the features for our target market. Yeah, that's a, that's a really uh, interesting point. And I want to talk about that uh, a little bit later as well, because it, it is it is tough to kind of figure out. When you get started, you just want to get the product out there. You want people totally. using it. And and even if, you, even if you're getting a dollar a month, at least it's some kind of validation that people are willing to, to pay for it. But then when you grow and you start to scale, then you sort of figure out, okay, well, I probably didn't want some of those people using <laughs> this product right now. Now how do I kind of move yeah. away from that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's not a bad problem to have at all. But, but, but uh, thinking back on it, maybe we could have turned the dial. Of course, at the time, you know, everyone who was downloading it, you know, I remember the first 20 people that downloaded it, I was just, I wanted to go hug them all. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to sound ungrateful to those early consumer adopters. But, um, but we always did want to build software for salespeople. And so, you know, it's arguable that we could have been more, even more effective if we had just started with them. But, you know, not a bad result either way. How did those first 20 people find out about Yesware and, and start using the product? Well, we were, I mean, we're based in Boston and we were in an incubator space uh, in those days when we first built the first version of Yesware. And so, you know, I literally just walked around to everyone else at the, in the incubator and said, will you try this out and sort of sat over their shoulders. And we actually, we used software to record their clicks. And I asked them sort of user centered design questions about, you know, could you, could you perform this task kind of questions. And so recorded all their, all their feedback and, and learned a lot about our design assumptions and how salespeople actually needed it to work. So we were able to get a lot of good personal one-to-one feedback in that way. Um, and then we really lucked out because we, we built this browser as a browser extension and we posted it in the Chrome store uh, for browser extensions. And that just turned out to be an incredible source of traffic for us. And we got a lot of users for free from the Chrome store that we never could have, you know, contacted otherwise. So that was a tremendous boon to the, for the early days. Did, did you have to do any kind of, um, paid placement there or anything or, or, no, we really didn't. We just, we just, um, we sort of tried to kickstart the reviews. You know, they, they have an algorithm that sorts these apps by reviews and recency of review and star ratings. So for the first 20 or so people that used it, we said, please fill in a review and we made it easy to, to write a review from the application. And we built in a little feature that was like, you know, if you like Yesware, tweet this kind of thing. Um, so those very simple word of mouth kind of features and then a great channel for distribution like the Chrome store um, was really all it took. Um, so how, how long did it take you to go f- to your first 100 users? Do you remember? Uh, I think it was, you know, in a week. Wow. Oh yeah. Maybe less. I mean, it was very quick. And what did you learn from that? Uh, it was, you know, it's 
it's great that people find out about a product. It's it's free to try, so you know the barriers are very low. Yeah. But what did you learn from that? Did people um, tend to continue using the product, or did you find problems or things that you hadn't anticipated? What was the, what was the general kind of churn in the early days? Well, I think the the first thing I learned was that um, you know distribution is at least as important as your product idea. <laughs> and I, it sounds kind of obvious, but I mean, we as a startup community spend so much time talking about product and product and product and how great product is and how important it is and the importance of design and product and all this stuff. But, you know, distribution is at least as important as that. And I mean, I think we, we work hard on the SWR application and we work to make it good. But if we hadn't had that free and, um, busy distribution point at the beginning. I'm not. I'm not sure we'd be here where we are now. So, I, I would just encourage folks who are getting their startup off the ground to sort of pause the application development process for a minute and think about the distribution of that app. Because if you can hack that, then you've got a really, really much better chance of success. Um, that's like that's in my mind for my next startup. If I ever have a startup, next startup, and and, and on, onwards. That's great learning from this whole experience but you know from the from from the early days of yesware and the first users there i mean uh i learned just a ton about again what salespeople actually need how they want the workflow to actually be um the most important features um we didn't so one of the most important features one of the most popular features with yesware now is is basically email tracking um as far as i know we were the first company to take email tracking, which, you know, is a very standard and old internet technology that was applied to one-to-many emails, like email newsletters and things like that, and apply it to one-to-one emails so that if I send you an email, I can see if you open it or not. Um, as far as I know, we were the first company to, to um, you know, apply that technology to one-to-one emails. And we did it sort of as a last-ditch effort in a sense. I mean, not really, but it wasn't the first feature we built at all. We we first built a set of templates um, for, you know, salespeople to very quickly respond to incoming email or to prospect with. Um, and we rolled that out, and people were using it, but it took a little while to get into. So people would download the extension and install it, and we get the, you know, a couple hundred users but they sort of weren't going back to it or only the ones who were really excited about templates were going back to it, which is only, you know, 10 or 12%. So it felt like there wasn't, there wasn't an immediate sense of gratification with the, with the early version of Yesware. Um, and then we add this tracking feature in and it's sort of everything turned around and the engagement went way up and people started writing us about how great it is and things like that. So you know, we were able to find pretty quickly a feature that that really lit up our users without very much investment from them. And that was sort of kind of the gateway drug for Yesware. Was was that a, a, a just an idea that you guys came up with or was that something you you discovered from customer feedback that a problem that they had? Where, where did the idea come from for that? Well, um, we knew about that sort of approach to tracking emails because of a previous company that we had worked at. Um, we worked at an email company that sent out newsletters for 
big publishers. And so we knew that you could track opens and link clicks and things like that, but it had just never been, hadn't been applied to personal one-to-one email, business emails um, to date that we knew of, but it was relatively easy to implement. And so we got that in there and just shipped it to see if it would work. What, what were you doing? You, were you just using some kind of, um, you know, image or something embedded in the email as a way to track? Yeah, that's, that's what, that's how it works now. The Chrome store turns out to be, uh, a, a piece of luck. You get, uh, you know, you get a good start, jump start with your distribution strategy. Um, were there other things that you tried that maybe didn't work? Oh my gosh. So, so, so many, uh, in terms of the application, you know, we've, we've, we've probably cut half as many features as, as we have in there now, you know, like we, we, we would try different features. We would roll them out. People wouldn't really use them. We'd cut them we'd try something else. You know, there's been a constant sort of winnowing process. Um, with the different individual features within Yesware. Um, one of the early ones, which I still love as an idea, honestly, was uh, called goals. The basic idea is like, hey, salespeople are goal-oriented. Um, let's pop a little window here and say, at the beginning of the month, what's your goal for this month? And you can type in your goal. And then we could track your progress towards those goals. Some things we could track automatically. Some things we track manually. Um, but it would give you this little meter, like a little score that says, here's your progress towards this goal. Um, I thought it was a brilliant idea. I do say so myself, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we implemented it, we shifted it, and no one really used it. So we pulled it out. What about from a, a marketing perspective, things that you tried that didn't work? Um, well, we didn't especially in the early days, we didn't do very much marketing at all, just because we had all these free users coming in. Um, so was, was it like, you know, 80, 90% of your users were coming through from the Chrome store? Yeah. Uh, at the beginning it was a hundred percent, you know, it was like wow. hundreds of users a day. Yeah. Well, that really is. I, there was, I can't remember. There was another founder I spoke to who had a similar similar sort of luck with the Chrome store where they um, not only got in the store, but for, for a certain amount of time they got featured on the homepage and that really helped kickstart what they were doing. The other side of it is there's probably lots of people who've tried the Chrome store and have just got lost in there with, you know, never been discovered. So. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's better than the um, iPhone, you know, app store, but not by much. Yeah. Um, when did you guys uh, get funding? Uh, we raised our first round in April of 2011. Like how, how were, you, were you? Were you bootstrapping in the early days or? Yeah. Yeah. We were just not taking a salary and we chipped in. We contributed some money. And, and then April 2011... Uh, how much did you raise back then? We raised about 1.2 million. Is is that the point where people were telling you, "Hey, this is not a category"? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's a really interesting thing that you know. On the one hand, 
you can kind of launch a product into an existing category and then people will tell you that there's there's already a bunch of companies doing what you're going to do and uh, is, you know, CRM is a classic case, right? I mean, every time I see a new product launched, a new CRM product launch, you got to wonder, it's like, do we really need another CRM product with everything that's out there? But, and so it's really about how do you differentiate, but then you guys have kind of differentiated so much that you were in a category of your own. And then you have to kind of explain to people that no, right. there's a, there's a valid reason that we need to have a new category here. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I think investors, you know, their job is to, is to try to find, you know, the one out of a thousand company that they feel good about backing. And so they're looking for reasons to say no. And th- there's a lot of them for a startup that's undried and untested. I must say it was harder than I expected for us to, to raise a seed round, just given that we had already built and sold the company. But, you know, we just kept that up, basically. I found a, a New York Times article that um, about you back from 2000, August 2014, where they talked about some of the challenges that you were facing with Yesware. And uh, I'll just read uh, kind of a little segment from that here. It says, converting free users into paying customers. By early 2013, even with a newly hired 10-person sales team, Yesware's sales were abysmal and the company had yet to turn a profit, casting a pall over bending efforts to raise venture capital. Um, so I, th- I thought that was really interesting. One in terms of what happened there, but also the fact that you went, you, you had a, one word for it. I'm sorry. I said interest. Interesting is one word for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, to be fair, I, I think the, uh, the, the, the reporter, you know, he's trying to make a story. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't quite as dire as it's, as it, as it sounded in that piece, but whatever, close enough. I want to talk about what, happened there is that you've got to a point where, I mean, you've raised funding, you have revenue coming in and you have, you've grown to a 10 person sales team, but something isn't still clicking here. And so you had sort of gone away and said, okay, I have, um, a few options that I can, um, take here to sort of turn things around. I can either sort of clean house and fire most of the salespeople, step in myself as VP of sales. Um, I can hire a VP of sales and have somebody come in and sort of take care of doing all of that for me. Um, or I can grow somebody from within the sales team to, to start managing the team. Um, so kind of just setting the context there, I want to kind of talk about, kind of go back to that. What was kind of going through your mind at the time um, and then what you did, but I don't want to just kind of, kind of replay what the New York times article covers. Cause we can just include a link to that in the show notes, but I'd really like to sort of drill down into what were some of the specific things that your sales team started to do differently, which helped you to start generating even more revenue. Um, so Kind of going going back to that, you had those three alternatives or choices. What did you decide to do? Um, I decided that um, while that I was going to search for a, a VP of sales, I was at that point trying to both be the VP of sales, which is a position I've had in the past, and also be the CEO. 
And I think that's where I was really trying to do kind of too much. Um, and it took, uh, you know, some, it took, it took a couple months for me to really see that that's what was holding us back. So I decided to go out and start a search for a VP of sales, knowing that that was going to take a while, you know, three to six months. I promoted one of the folks inside the team to be sort of director of sales while I did that search. Do you think the the challenge of converting free users into paying customers, do you think this was a, a sales problem alone or do you think it was also a, a product slash kind of value prop problem? Was there uh, enough of a compelling reason for people to switch to a paying plan, a paid plan? Um, actually the, the, the switch from a free version to an individual plan was pretty good. And the conversion was high, actually quite high. The problem that we were having was converting those paid users, those individual paid users or small teams at companies, um, to a corporate plan, you know, to sell it to the entire organization. And that, so that very much was I think of both a sales and a marketing problem, uh, like a sort of lead lead readiness MQL kind of problem. What, what, I, what I think was interesting, what you just said there was, and it kind of made me realize that it, it, this was kind of, instead of trying to do this as sort of a top-down sell where you're kind of going in and um, maybe talking to, um, you know, the CEO or C-level person about, Hey, here's a, here's a CRM solution that your organization should be using because you were targeting a tool for salespeople. It was relatively easy for any salesperson who was using Google apps to start using your product and even start moving over to a paid plan. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of almost like your Trojan horse into the organization. And then the question was, okay, how, how do you, how do you leverage that, that opportunity, that kind of, opening that you have to get more people in that organization also using the product. That, that's right. That, that's right. The, the initial sales that we had to corporations were, were largely spurned by, you know, their salespeople or sales management or head of sales operations calling us and saying, Hey, you know, 60 people at our company are using Yesware. you know, what the heck is it? How does it work? And, you know, those are obviously really, really good sales leads. Um, and so we would, you know, work on those deals. And that's how we closed Groupon and Fox and a number of other early, early companies. So what, what changed with the sales team? What did they start doing differently? Well, well, I'd just say you, you, you eventually hired a, a VP of sales. Yep. Um, and so what, what changed in terms of what they were doing? I think the big, the biggest thing that changed was that they then had a person who was, you know, really working in the trenches with them, strategizing on every call and meeting and deal. And in the past, I had been sort of letting these uh, salespeople sort of, you know, go out and eat what they kill, um, but not helping nearly as much as I think they needed me to do, to do given the state of the product and the market. Um, so when we hired this woman, Bridget Gleason, who was our first VP of sales, she really got down in the weeds with people and helped them move deals ahead. And that really accelerated things. You know, I don't think we can kind of spend the time that we have to 
give people a deep dive into how to do sales and prospecting and close deals. But for somebody maybe who is a, let's talk about somebody who's maybe a a founder uh, or maybe some you know co-founders, they're at early stages, maybe they're doing um, the sales themselves. What would be your advice to those people? What are some practical things that they should start to think about to implement on a day-to-day basis to help them get the get a kind of an early stage sales machine going? Well, there's there's a really wonderful book um, by Mark Roberge, who is the first head of sales at HubSpot. It's another Boston-based company, and he, and he puts it. He he's got a great plan in that book. So for folks who want to dig in deeper, I would recommend looking at Mark Roberge's book um, on this. In a nutshell, I feel like um, making sure that the quality of the leads that you're passing to the sales team is high um, is the first thing. And then the second thing is gate the number of salespeople you hire by the number of leads that you have coming in. Now that sounds like a really obvious thing to do, but it's surprisingly hard to figure out what a good lead is. And so my advice there is to make it harder than you'd think it would be. Um, as a founder, you know, you have an inbuilt advantage when it comes to selling things because you know the product so well and you can speak so you know, lovingly and authoritatively about the project while you're doing it. But it's harder for other people to come in and sell that product. So you want to give them the best chance to succeed, which means make sure that the leads that you're providing are really, really, really high quality. And then only hire salespeople when you're sure you have enough leads for the second or the third or the fourth one. So the book that you mentioned is called The Sales Acceleration Formula. And we can include a, a, a link in the show notes for that. I think that's that's good advice. And and so let's let's kind of think of a scenario where somebody maybe is using Yesware or decides that they want to start using Yesware. Um, what what are some good best practices that they can kind of put in place to get better quality leads coming through? Um, I, I guess it starts with, you know, obviously like where, where you're getting, uh, these potential, you know, emails from that you're going to start prospecting with. Um, but, but where, where does that start? Where does it start with writing the email in a particular way? Does it, is it about doing the right kind of follow up with people? Is this, how, how would, I think it starts at the very before any emails. Uh, it starts with being very specific about your target market. It starts with a very clear buyer persona. You know, um, we want to sell this product to you know IT managers in small and mid-sized companies located uh, that serve these particular industries, potentially like in these geographic areas. You know, and if you can be very specific about your target market, then you can get down to the point where you can go and buy a list of those people and then start calling them up or emailing them and saying, you know, here's what I'm doing. Um, 
because because of our you know sort of success with the Chrome store, we had a lot of leads, but they were coming from all over the world actually. So we weren't as disciplined about um, focusing our sales efforts on a very specific target market. Um, and we sort of waited for the market to emerge, which it ended up doing, but I think we might have been more efficient if we had presupposed a specific target market, you know, dominated that at the outset and then expanded sort of in a more disciplined fashion from there. So were you in the early days, were your salespeople just going through the the list of free users and, and trying to yeah, exactly. engage them? And some of them happened to be maybe the target customer. Others were maybe a, you know, a consumer trying to use it just because they thought it was kind of a geeky thing to do to track people's open rates or something. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, we could do some amount of discrimination from the beginning, which, you know, is necessary. We, we, and anyone who signed up with a gmail.com address, we didn't, we never contacted, um, people that signed up from non-English speaking countries, we didn't contact, like we could do some amount of filtering there, but I just think we could have been more disciplined about it. Yeah. So what, what would you have done differently? Um, I think, you know, again, 2020 hindsight, but, um, but if we had set a higher threshold for what would constitute a lead instead of, instead of it being sort of, let's say any U S company with three or more yes, where users at it, if we instead said, you know, any U S company in the high tech or media industries with 10 or more paying users at it, you know, just made it much higher to get that threshold. Then we would have hired fewer salespeople and we would have, um, you know, those salespeople likely would have been able to close those deals more efficiently because they would have been spending time on other leads that weren't as good and so on and so forth. When we started talking, you said that when you launched the product, you were charging somewhere like $5 a month for the paid plan. And you often hear, uh, well, I often hear people saying, well, you can't build um, any kind of sizable business if you're charging five or $10 a month. Which is totally not true, right? If you you look at Dollar Dollar Shave Club, you can clearly see that you can build a sizable business, but it has to be a very broad ranging business. Right. Or you need to have a path to get people up from your, your, your customer value in terms of, you know, how much you're going to be able to charge people. There needs to be some kind of path where you can deliver the ongoing value where more people will, people will pay more or more people will use the product. And so I want to kind of give people a, a sense of the scale of your business now. In, in terms of like ballpark revenue, where are you guys right now? Uh, we're over $10 million a year. Oh, that's, that's huge. So congratulations on, on doing Thank that. Thank you. Um, and you're not charging $5 a month anymore, though, are you? Uh, no, we're not. The, the, the lowest price now for Yesware is $15 a month. And do you, you, I remember that um, you used to have a, a sort of a free plan where you could send like 100 emails a month or something like that. Do you still have that? I think I read somewhere that you'd stopped doing that. 
We we did. We stopped the free plan in May of this year. And and was that was that because you just got to a point where you just had enough critical mass where you didn't want to sort of continue with a freemium model? Uh, no, it was, it was a very difficult decision actually. Um, you know, because we had spent almost five years as a, as a freemium company, but we, um, you know, we did a lot of analysis of the people that were using the free product and, um, and realized that, you know, they weren't in a sense, you know, carrying their weight. Unfortunately, they weren't, they weren't contributing back to, the business as much as we needed them to in order to keep supporting their use of the application. So, um, you know, we, we gave them a special discount and a new trial of the whole of the current version of Yesware because many of them hadn't seen a lot of the features that we've rolled out in the intervening years. Um, and then, you know, said, we hope you end up signing up and joining again. But, um, you know, for those who didn't, we ended their free plan. Uh, and size of the business, uh, how many how many employees do you have now? Uh, almost a hundred. I I guess there are a lot more competitors in the market today as well than than there were back that's in two thousand and ten or That's another. right. That's true. Which is obviously a good thing. But it, but I think it's it's just what I what I love about this story is that you started off with a um, a, a big a big vision, but um, you you executed in a, in a kind of a smart way, get to market quickly. We're very, uh, realistic, uh, uh, about, uh, what you were charging for the product. And I think you're a great example of, Hey, you don't have to always go and charge, you know, customers several hundred dollars a month to be able to, to build a business that does over $10 million a year. So it's a, it's an awesome story. All right. It's uh, time for our lightning round. I'm going to ask you a series of questions and just like you to answer them as quickly as you can. You ready? I'm ready. What's the best piece of business advice that you ever received? I, I didn't receive this personally, but it's a, it's advice that rings true for me. Uh, the Winston Churchill quote, never give up, never, ever, ever give up. I love that one. What? <laughs> What book would you recommend to our audience and why? Uh, geez, that's too broad a question. I think I don't know your audience well enough to say, but I, I did recommend that Mark Roberge book for people interested in sales. So. Yep, we'll include that one. Uh, what's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful entrepreneur? I think it's got to be um, perseverance. I think it's got to be grit, you know, the ability to keep going. I think uh, a lot of, entrepreneurism can be summed up into, you know, having an inspiration, see, you know, running up into an obstacle, coming up with a creative way to solve the obstacle, getting inspired again, hitting another obstacle, you know, creative solving the obstacle and so on. I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Well, I mean, I, I have to go with yesware.com. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do use it every single day. and It really is. It's a good application. Uh, what's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Ideas, ideas are not, uh, are not my problem. Uh, I'm really interested in this, in this category of, um, of software where the product sells the product. And so I'm interested in, 
product and product analysis. You see some things from mixed panel and gain site and things like that, but I think there's a lot of opportunity in that space, which is not really, as far as I can tell, being worked on that much. Uh, what's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? <laughs> um, I spent a year living in a meditation center in northern Colorado before coming back east and getting a job. Wow. Wow. I, I mean, I when we were kind of, before we started recording, I, I kind of told you I kind of wanted to talk about the the meditation if we got a chance, but I didn't realize that you were that into meditation. That's some pretty serious stuff. <laughs> it was amazing, actually. It was, a, it was a great year. It was the best year of my single life, for sure. Oh, wow. Uh, and finally, what is one of your most important passions outside of your work? Well, I've got three kids uh, who are extremely endearing and cute and funny and occasionally very challenging. So <laughs> I, uh, that's, 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 that takes up most of my energy outside of work. Matthew, I want to thank you for joining me. Thank you for sharing your story about Yesware and uh, uh, the lessons that you learned along the way. As I said, it's a, it's a great story of, of how you've built a sizable business um, in a relatively short amount of time. Now, if people want to find out more about Yesware or give, give it a try, they can go to yesware.com. Uh, if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, my, my email address is Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, at yesware.com, or you can reach me through Twitter at mbellows. Okay, awesome. Matthew, thanks again. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Elmer. Great talking with you. Cheers.